Well, let me add my welcome to Ben's. Good evening, everyone. As we come to God's word, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, you declare blessed those who delight in your word, those who meditate upon it night and day, those who keep and obey it. And we pray that you would make us these people tonight. What we have not, give us. What we are not, make us. For Jesus' sake, amen. What is the future of religion? Such was a, a title of a 2019 BBC article. What would your answer to that question be? What is the future of religion? Well, there's a line in this article that uh, captures quite well, I think, the way many people think about it today. It says, given all that, there's a growing consensus that the future of religion is that it has no future. Isn't humanity like a child coming of age? Now that we understand more of how the world works, we no longer need religion. We no longer need God. We've grown up. The world is coming of age. So some people argue. And as Christians, we, uh, we feel that's the way many people around us think. And uh, I couldn't tell you how many times, actually even today, just earlier as I was um, traveling, uh, when just meeting unbelievers and saying that I'm, I'm training to become a pastor in the church, uh, so often they look at me like I'm some sort of, of relic from the past. They kind of wonder what I'm doing, why I'm doing that. And I wonder if you've ever had that reaction, that you're telling to people that you're a committed Christian. People look at you as if you're part of a dying species. Why still believe in Jesus today? Well, the reality is that skepticism wasn't invented during the Enlightenment. Jesus himself faced skeptics. And that's what we see in our passage. And the way Jesus sorry, deals with his critics teaches us a lot about the reasons and consequences for disbelief. And Jesus, in this text, in this text sorry, challenges disbelief. And so doing brings comfort and reassurance as well to believers who themselves face the pressures of unbelief. And so our first point tonight, King Jesus has come. Pick aside verses 14 to 28. If you have your Bible open, that would be very helpful for you to just follow along as we go through this text. So King Jesus has come. Pick aside verses 14 to 28. The story, the story starts with Jesus driving out a demon. And clearly something miraculous happened as this man starts to speak when he was mute before that in verse 14. And people are amazed by it. Yet um, reactions are mixed. If you look down with me at verse 15, but some of them said, by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. And others tested him by asking for a sign from heaven. The first group of people basically say that Jesus is evil. 
The reason why he's able to perform these miracles is because he has authority from the prince of demons to control lesser demons. Jesus knows and he answers to those critics first. And he starts by saying that it is absolutely rational for him to do that, or so they say, in the power of Beelzebul. Look down with me at verses 17 and 18. Any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and a house divided against itself will fall. If Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? Now, Satan would have to be extremely stupid to hire a guy to destroy his own demons. Why would he do that? He would be destroying his own kingdom. It makes no sense. And so Jesus carries on in verse 19 by pointing to their inconsistency in judgment. Others from their own community cast out demons. Do they ever accuse them of being evil? Jesus, in verse 20, puts forward a much more plausible alternative to what just happened here. So verse 20, Jesus says, But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus casting out demons is the sign that the kingdom of God has come. It is no civil war within the kingdom of Satan, It is the conquest of Satan's kingdom by the kingdom of God, through Jesus, God's king. And that's uh, what Jesus carries on, um, sorry, Jesus carries on to explain this very truth in verses 21 to 22. Look down with me. When a strong man fully armed guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up his plunder. The strong man here is Satan, but the even stronger man here is King Jesus. King Jesus defeats Satan and his kingdom and brings the kingdom of God. And this is the most wonderful truth that Jesus explains here. For who, what's, who are Satan's possessions? Well, humanity, is it good to be under Satan's dominion? Well, no. It is made plain by, uh, through the picture of the demon-possessed man of verse 14 who was mute. The point is not that every disability is due to a demon's possession, but that being under the influence of Satan causes damage and suffering. And the Bible is clear that even though um, demon's possessions are unusual phenomenon, All of humanity is under Satan's influence, Satan's rule, because we have rejected God's rule. Open the newspaper and look at what humans are doing to each other. Open a history book and look at what humans have done to each other. Look at your own heart and see that The seeds of these things are in your heart as well. Evil is a thing. Satan is real. And his kingdom is a place of slavery, of harm, suffering, and death. But King Jesus has come. He has overpowered Satan. And this is seen in the exorcism in this text, but chiefly at the cross. 
Jesus' death is the ultimate blow to Satan's kingdom. Because at the cross, Jesus dies in the place of sinners to deliver them from Satan's rule and kingdom, to transfer them into his own kingdom. Jesus plundered Satan through his death and resurrection. And if you're a Christian tonight, you are part of Jesus' spoil. And this means that there is through Jesus for all a way out to enter into God's kingdom. A kingdom of peace and justice, of freedom and love. Two very different kingdoms. To which do you belong? To which do you belong? And neither is not a possible answer. Look at what Jesus says in verse 23. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Either you are with King Jesus or you are against him. There's no Switzerland in this cosmic war. Not choosing a side means siding against Jesus. People today chat about being in the right side of history. And a lot of people would say that siding with Jesus is probably siding with the past and not the right side of history. A growing number of people consider Jesus and his teachings as um, evil, just like these people in this text. But in this text, Jesus leaves us in no doubt as to where the right side of history lies. Jesus is crushing Satan. He is currently plundering his kingdom as more and more men and women decide to side with Jesus. He's gathering people into his kingdom as the gospel is proclaimed to all. This until he finally comes to fully destroy Satan forever. It might be harder and harder to be a Christian in our society, but it is the right call. Because King Jesus is ruling and will win. And if you should still be unsure about which side to pick, then Jesus tells a story to help us make up our minds. In verses 24 to 26, a story about an evil spirit coming back uh, with some friends, if I could put it this way, after having been cast out from the person that was uncommitted. The house of this person was empty. You see, there is a, a rule in physics, I actually don't know if this is a true rule, but I think it's quite famous, that nature abhors a vacuum. If you're into physics, you'll be able to correct me later. But this rule applies to spiritual life. That's what uh, this little story is about. If by God's grace you are delivered from some evil, whether it be some character issue, anger issue, or even an addiction, or have experienced some sort of great uh, spiritual experience, but if you fail to definitively side with Jesus, evil will come back. And it will be worse than before. And I uh, sadly have come away, uh, come across, sorry, many people in my life who showed great interest in the gospel, in Christianity, in Jesus. And as they were learning more and more, it really had a positive effect on themselves, on their lives. But they never clearly sided with Jesus. They never clearly committed to Jesus. They remained ambiguous in their commitment. And soon, 
they left Jesus and the gospel behind to return to their previous life, fully back into the kingdom of Satan in slavery and darkness. But if the consequences for rejecting Jesus are destructive for man, the consequences for siding with King Jesus are amazing. Look at verses 27 and 28. As Jesus was saying these things, a woman in the crowd called out, Blessed is your mother, the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. He replied, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Jesus is God's king, as we have seen. Surely no one is more blessed than his mother to have such a son. Yet, as this woman declares his mother to be blessed, Jesus declares, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. The blessings of the kingdom of God are for those who listen to Jesus. The one who speaks the very words of God. For those who keep his word. These people who decidedly side with Jesus. They, these people experience the blessings of being forgiven all their sins. Of knowing God and having fellowship with him. Of knowing his love, his peace. Of having eternal life in his kingdom. So if you are a Christian tonight, well, you are more blessed than Mary herself, who bore the Lord in her womb and fed him on her lap. How incredible. But maybe you're a follower of Jesus tonight and you keenly feel the attraction of the things of the world. You are tempted to slowly put aside Jesus to spare you trouble or to fully enjoy this world. But pay attention to Jesus' words here. If that's the way you want to go, you're risking big. True blessedness and joy is found in wholeheartedly following and siding with the king. Not in running after a world that is ruled by Satan. King Jesus has come. It is reasonable and profitable to believe in him. But you have to pick a side and to commit to it. Well, maybe you think, I don't have enough information to pick a side yet. And that's exactly what the second group of critics of Jesus uh, we saw tonight at the start of thought. And this leads us to our second point. King Jesus has come, recognize the sign. King Jesus has come, recognize the sign, verses 29 to 36. So the second group of people... Um, wanted a sign from heaven. The uh, exorcism was not enough. How could they be sure after all? The stereotype of incredibly naive and credulous uh, first century people is, is just not true. Some people weren't impressed by Jesus' miracles. They wanted something bigger just to be sure. And I wonder if you've ever said that you would believe in God if he did something truly incredible. I wonder if you've ever prayed to God to give you a sign of his existence. But Jesus doesn't want to play their sign game. Look at verse 29. As the crowds increased, Jesus said, this is a wicked generation. It asks for a sign, but none will be given 
it accepts the sign of Jonah. Jesus calls them a, a wicked generation because they refuse to believe. Their request of a sign is, is simply a cover-up for their unbelief, their unwillingness to believe. And Jesus knows that no sign will satisfy them. If you're part of those who are looking for a sign, will you not always be able to find a way to rationalize every sign that is given to you? Will a sign ever be good enough? Yet Jesus give, gives them a new a sign, the sign of Jonah. Jonah was a prophet from the Old Testament. He went uh, and preached the judgment of God to the Ninevites, a people who were bloodthirsty, very violent. And as such, Jesus says, Jonah was a sign to them, a sign that God's judgment is near and that they should repent, as verse 33 in our text implies. The preaching of Jesus, who is the Son of Man, is the sign given to this generation. And it is enough. It is enough. And Jesus uses two illustrations to make his point. First, he talks about, in verse 31, the Queen of the South, who traveled from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, Jesus is the king that Solomon himself was only foreshadowing. Jesus is the wisdom of God in the flesh. Yet this generation would not listen to the preaching and wisdom of Jesus. And so this queen will be their judge. And the second uh, are the Ninevites in verse 33. They repent, sorry, 32. They repented of their sins at the preaching of Jonah, recognizing their evil and need for God's grace. This generation has Jesus, the Son of God himself, preaching to them, yet they do not repent or believe. Therefore, the Ninevites will be their judges. All these people listened and believed through messengers far less important than Jesus, who is the king himself. Yet this generation refuses to acknowledge the king and hides behind this petty request of a sign. Yet they are without excuse. And so are those today who hear the proclamation of the gospel yet do not believe. If you are here tonight and would like a sign to believe, well, Jesus says, there you have it, the proclamation of the gospel to you. You will have nothing more than the proclamation of Christ crucified and Christ resurrected. Because if that is not enough for you, well, no sign will be enough. Don't use a lack of extraordinary sign as an excuse not to Acknowledge Jesus, because you, sorry, he will have none of it. And the consequences, again, are terrible. Judgment and condemnation are repeated twice in these short uh, three verses. They are the result of disbelief in Jesus, as he makes clear. Now, what Jesus said here was shocking to these uh, Jewish people. They were 
God's chosen people. And both the Queen of the South and the Ninevites were pagans. They are the most unlikely candidates to be their judges. Yet they will be. It's a great reversal because they recognized a lesson sign they had been given. But this generation has had the full sign, yet they refuse to recognize it. And this means condemnation to suffer outside of God's kingdom. And why do they not recognize the sign that Jesus is giving to them in his proclamation? Maybe, maybe the sign is the problem. Maybe the sign is not good enough. Well, yesterday I missed the train. Um, I misread the sign on the board. I thought my train was on platform eight when it was actually on platform seven. And by the time I'd, I'd um, understood my mistake and ran to platform seven, it was just two seconds too late. The sign was clear, platform seven. I was the problem, not the sign. And that's what Jesus tells in his next parable about the lamp. Jesus' sign is evident like a lamp on a stand. The problem is not in the, in the sign, in the proclamation of Jesus. It's in the eye of the people. Because their eye is unhealthy, they do not acknowledge or recognize it. Verse 34. They are not approaching Jesus with integrity. They refuse to see the sign. So Jesus warns, be careful at how you see. Because you might be full of darkness, lost, condemned. And as to the healthy eye, the one who recognizes the sign and so repents and believes in him, in Jesus, his life is lit by the lamp of God's truth. It is the blessed life of hearing and obeying God's words. If you have recognized the sign, Jesus says, Jesus says that your eye is healthy. You see correctly. You are not an irrational fool. Don't be tempted to give up because of maybe what others might say or the judgment of others. One day you will be their judge. And if you do not see the sign, let me invite you to consider the condition of your eye. Why? Why do you refuse to see the signs you have already been given. From Jesus' perspective, you are without excuse. Because of a bad eye, I missed a train. I bitterly regretted it. It was extremely annoying. But missing the kingdom of God is a, is a whole different scale. And it's something you will bitterly regret if you do. So the king have come, the, sorry, the king has come. Recognize the sign. And as our text continues, we see that those who would be most expected to recognize the sign are those who get it completely wrong. This is our final point. King Jesus has come, forsake empty religion. King Jesus has come, forsake empty religion. Verses 37 to 53. In verses 37 and 38, we read of a Pharisee, a Jewish religious leader, who invites Jesus for some food, and he is astonished that Jesus doesn't do the traditional washings. 
we have gone through a pandemic. We've been told countless times to wash our hands. But the washing here is not about hygiene. It's about a ritual purity. Pharisees were concerned about outward purity, not touching certain things, washing, etc. Because they thought that this made them acceptable before God. They thought they were the pure ones. And so uh, this Pharisee here is judging Jesus because he didn't do the washings. And this launches Jesus in one of the most outright condemnations of empty religions. Some of the harshest words we see Jesus pronounce in the Gospels. The Pharisees are obsessed with the outside. They have neglected the inside. While they look cleaned, clean, sorry, and, and put together, inside they are, verse 39, full of greed and wickedness. Their religion is superficial and hypocritical. Jesus calls them foolish because God, who created both the outside and the inside, cares for both. Their good appearance might cut it before man, but not before God. They are just like the wicked generation of verse 29, and like them, they need to repent. That's what Jesus calls them to in verse 41, to change in the inside from their greed to generosity. You see, real purity starts with washing your heart, not your hands. And that's what they didn't understand. And so Jesus, Jesus pronounces uh, three woes on the Pharisees. Woes are warnings of the nearness of God's judgments. If you've read through the prophets of the Old Testament, you will regularly see woes pronounced by God on his unfaithful people. And the first one here in verse 42 deals with their neglect of godliness. These guys were being very selective in their observance of God's law. They were meticulously following some rules whilst neglecting the ones that really mattered, loving God and doing justice. In the second row, in verse 43, Jesus addresses their love for fame and status. They like being important people. And they use their religion to become important in the eyes of others. They get a thrill out of people respecting and admiring them. In the third one, in verse 44, Jesus addresses their deception of other people. In Jewish law, contact with death made someone ritually impure. And Jesus is saying here that the very Pharisees who are so concerned with purity, they are making others impure without them knowing it. They are like white graves that people walk onto without realizing. They deceive others and they lead people further away from God rather than closer to God because their religion is empty. God's judgment is upon these religious leaders for their hypocritical, self-serving religion. And because it is hypocritical and self-serving, it leads people away from God when it promises the opposite. And at this point, uh, one of the experts in the law, that's 
people who worked very closely with the Pharisees. Um, he's clearly offended by what Jesus has said concerning the Pharisees. And here maybe um, he wants to give a chance to Jesus to redeem himself and say something nice about the experts in the law. But yet Jesus launches again into a series of three woes incriminating the experts in the law from verse 46. These people, they were experts in the law of Moses, the Jewish law, and they were the ones telling people what is right and what is wrong. They were the moral guide, compass for the people. Yet what had they done? Well, look at the first woe in verse 46. Woe to you, because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. The burdens they lay on people are the laws they added to the word of God that they imposed on people as obligations. Yet, as they did so, they did not move one finger to help these poor people follow these extra commandments. Second, they are guilty of killing prophets sent by God, verses 47 to 51. Hypocrit hypocritically, they honor the memory of prophets that their ancestors killed by building them nice tombs. Yet by rejecting Jesus, who is the wisdom of God, from verse 49, and his prophets and apostles, they are just like their ancestors who killed the prophets. And so they are guilty like them. It's a bit like governments today who uh, built memorials and uh, do things to honor the memory of those who've suffered from slavery or colonialism while still engaging in the same kind of behaviors in other places in the world. It's completely inconsistent. It's completely hypocritical. And I don't know if you've noticed, but in verses 50 and 51, there's an interesting shift from the experts in the law to this generation. Got it in verse 50, this generation, and in verse 51 as well, this generation. It's not just the experts in the law who are under God's judgment, but this generation as a whole. The same generation of verses 29 to 32. Because of their rejection of Jesus as prophet, his prophets, sorry, and his apostles. Jesus focuses again on the experts in the law for the final woe in verse 52. By their position as experts in the word of God, they had the key to help people enter into a true and deeper knowledge of God, to lead them into his kingdom. An amazing privilege, an amazing responsibility as well. Yet they have done the extra opposite, the exact opposite, sorry. They have not entered themselves. And what's more, well, they've prevented others from entering by their rotten religion. People look to them to teach them the way to God, yet they completely mislead them. And chiefly by rejecting Jesus himself. They should have been the first ones to acknowledge Jesus as king, but they reject him. 
and lead others to do the same. Both Pharisees and experts in the law are spiritually bankrupt. They are leading others into their spiritual bankruptcy. The heart of their religious bankruptcy is fundamentally their rejection of Jesus the King. And by the end of this chapter, instead of repenting, they are completely antagonized against him and plot to catch him. In the same way today, every religious system that rejects Jesus, not just Jesus as a person, but Jesus as king, as he truly is and comes to us, is bankrupt and under God's judgment and condemnation. It might be Christless Christianity that is in so much of the institutional churches around this country. It might be other religions. Religious people don't get into the kingdom of God. No matter how good they look on the outside, only those who acknowledge the king get into the kingdom. And we need to hear it today. We need to hear it because we are constantly told that religions are all the same. That ultimately what matters is to be nice to others. Jesus, although he was the most loving man on earth, he could not more strongly disagree with that statement. A religion that has not Christ Jesus as Lord and King is bankrupt and leads to condemnation. This is a sobering reality. And the only way out of this condemnation, because the good news is that there is a way out, is by siding with Jesus, by recognizing the sign, recognizing him as king. If your religion is Christless, whether you call it Christianity or whatever else, take Jesus' warning seriously. Don't follow the examples of these religious leaders who, instead of repenting in the face of Jesus' accusations, firmly sided against him in verses 33 and 34, but repent, side with him, escape judgment. The words of Jesus are ultimately for all who reject him. But notice in this passage what a contrast with the blessedness of those who hear and obey the word of God. First, by repenting and believing in Jesus. So brothers and sisters, don't be discouraged in your faith by the unbelief you see around you every day. Don't let it shake your own faith in Jesus. You have picked the right side. You have recognized the sign and acknowledged the king. You have found true religion because Christ is at the center of it. And by doing so, you are truly blessed. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that King Jesus has come. We thank you that he has transformed, transfer, transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his marvelous light. We recognize that this is not uh, by our own merits. 
but that it is fully by your grace. You have opened our eyes through the Holy Spirit, and, and we are sobered by the words of Jesus and that we have heard tonight, hard words indeed. And we pray for our generation. We pray that you would grant repentance to those who do not yet believe in Jesus. Please, would you show your compassion and grace again? Open the eyes of those who are finding false assurance in empty religion. And we pray that, that they and us also would know and grow in the blessedness, the true blessedness of hearing and obeying your word, of belonging into your eternal kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and...